Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald. And Luann is the Chief Operating Officer of C.S. Mott Children's Hospital, and she's also the Chief Operating Officer of the Von Voigtlander Women's Hospital. And Lou, on this edition of the show, the April edition, we've got some very interesting things that we're going to talk about. We, we do. We have, you know, in every... Every one of our guests really impacts my life. <laughs> so, um, and and what I'm seeing, you know, in the community, and what I'm seeing in our hospitals. So, I'm really excited to speak to all of them. And our first guest is Michelle Morris, and she is our Women Who Lead honoree for the month of April. And her career has been just amazing, hasn't it? It has. She. She has been on a fun ride for sure. And I can't wait to talk to her about her current role at Facebook. Um, As you know, you and I are both avid Facebookers. And so I, I can't wait to talk to her. And the other really interesting story that we have coming up is our Michigan Medicine guest about children dealing with the long-term effects of COVID. And I don't think a lot of people realize that's happening. Correct. And, you know, I'm just thankful that we have the team that we do at CS Mod because they quickly, quickly put a clinic together to help address the community need. And I know Dr. Ramirez was going to talk to us about that. And finally, some very tough news with regard to domestic violence and the pandemic. Uh, Pretty troubling to hear how bad the situation is, Lou. It is. It's very troubling, and we are seeing it every day um, in our emergency rooms. And so really just, you know, talking to our guests about, you know, what we can do as a society and a community to really help combat and assist uh, reducing domestic violence. We'll get started with all of these interviews in just a few minutes. Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald. And Luann, our first guest is Michelle Morris, the Vice President of Global Marketing Solutions for Facebook. And Michelle is also one of our 2021 Women Who Lead honorees. Michelle, welcome to the show. It's great to see you and congratulations. Well, thank you for that. It is a deep, deep honor, and I'm grateful to be here with both of you. And I'm going to let Lou kick things off. I know she's got tons of questions. She's very good on Facebook. (laughs) I am very good on Facebook. Thank you, Anne. (laughs) Thanks for being here, Michelle. My first question is, looking at your bio, you, um, you had an interest in automotive marketing, it appears, early on. So where, where did that passion come from? Yes. Well, I'm born and raised here in the Motor City, and I'm deeply passionate about the industry because I grew up in it. So I was a psychology major in college, didn't know by time I figured out that maybe I should have gone business or marketing, um, it was time to go. And I jumped into human resources and was fortunate enough to start my career in human resources at an ad agency called Ross Roy, which ultimately became BBDO. And our client, we were the agency of record for Chrysler at the time. And so I had the fortune of not only being in human resources, 
but moving to the front lines and working on, you know, if there was a project to do or if I can fix it, I was fortunate to move around in different departments at the ad agency, which really just reinforced my love for the industry. It's fast moving, it's fast paced, it's constantly innovating. It does such an important job around the world, but also within our local communities. So you're right, I've uh, started in the ad agency, and then I was actually minding my own business and, and Google called and said, hey, um, we're thinking that we should double down on automotive. Would you be interested in joining us? And at first I thought, no way. I, I loved the agency. I loved my team. I love the work we were doing. But as I really began to learn more about digital, I actually recognized that many of the jobs I was trying to do on the agency side could be done more efficiently and allow us to, to uniquely connect with our consumers from a digital landscape. And then I was so fortunate, Facebook actually called, I had no intention of leaving Google and Facebook <laughs> called Carolyn Everson and said, hey, um, I, have, I have an opening on our automotive business and even if, even if you're not interested, we should probably just know one another. And I thought that was such a, an excellent way. I of course returned the call and I was really intrigued because it was an opportunity to build Facebook's automotive practice. We, um, we At that time, we only had a handful of individuals. Uh, Facebook was coming off the IPO, which was pretty rocky, and advertisers were unsure if we actually worked. And so I was really excited about the challenge to roll up my sleeves. I was really excited about building and then the really interesting thing was I was on Facebook myself uh, you, where you started and you know what? I couldn't give it up. So it was it was a really, I saw the, the draw of it that my family members were watching my kids grow up. And I was also really impressed all the way in 2013, Facebook had gone mobile first and I was seeing those trends. And so I feel really fortunate that I was able to jump in uh, deeply rooted in automotive. I'm based here um, in, in Detroit and then look after uh, five other categories in addition to automotive, which all have very similar through lines. So talk to me about what a typical day is for you, knowing that typical days don't exist. I'm just, I'm intrigued <laughs> with your Facebook world. Um, you know, you, you get to do it personally and you get to do it professionally. So, so what does that look like? It is exactly what you said. No two days are the same. I am constantly learning, constantly studying. And that is because the world that we're in is constantly changing. So as we're recognizing trends that we're seeing on the platforms, as we're trying to double down and help, you know, Facebook is a big business. We're in the business of helping small businesses. It's a deep passion of mine. The majority of my industries have franchisees. We know and love those. Those are our dealers, our real estate agents, our insurance agents. And not only are they providing services to all of us, but they're the heart and soul of their community. So, you know, anything from doubling down on ways that we can help offer training programs that we can work with our partners on. And then we're just work with our clients trying to advise them on the business challenges that they have. And there are many right now, as you can imagine. And we're trying to bring the resources that Facebook has to not only connect them with their consumers, but also help them prepare to innovate, to pivot. Some of the work I was most proud of that we led during COVID-19 was helping industries stay in touch with their consumers help identify how to market regionally as different markets were opening and closing. We were able to 
keep the lights on, if you if you will, virtually with uh, walk arounds on Facebook Live and home tours on Facebook. So, you know, I think as the world changes, so does my job, but one thing stays the same and it's just my passion for these industries. I'm partial, of course, because they're mine, but I'm, I'm deeply passionate about each of these, these industries and what they offer to the consumers that, you know, are connecting with them, that are really looking to these companies to lead the way forward. Michelle, one of the things that I noticed, especially during COVID, was how the auto industry was using Facebook for their reveals. Yes, and let's just talk about our auto industry. If we if we if we can just glow about our industry, I mean, so proud of they pivoted as they always do, manufacturing mass immediately. I you know I just kudos to the leadership all over, but particularly here in Detroit. And, and you know, that's what this industry does. This industry is vital. It, it it pivots, it knows its consumers, it goes where the need is, and that is what we needed the, the manufacturing industry to do, led by auto, so, so incredibly proud. And to your point, one of their other more important pivots was they had to launch vehicles, they had to reveal vehicles, and they were front and center using our technology to highlight vehicles, and they actually had great success. They had reservations on vehicles that exceeded their expectations. And so I am not surprised an industry that could pivot from making cars to making masks right when we needed them the most could then pivot their marketing campaigns in the same time. So just I have an immense amount of pride and deep respect for, for what the industry provides to all of us. You know, you've got an amazing career. Can you just step back for a minute and think about all of the different positions that you've had and give some advice to women in business, especially now, Michelle, uh, during COVID-19? What are some of your thoughts for women right now? Because a lot of women have had to leave the business world. Absolutely. Well, first, I just I want to say to all women, if I could give you a piece of advice, it is to bet on yourself. I think as women, we're so busy proving ourselves that we forget just to bet on ourselves. We forget what we are offering, what we are uniquely qualified to do, what we persevere, and the courage that we have to drive change. So, my number one piece of advice would just be bet on yourself. Don't prove yourself, bet on yourself. The second thing is just to trust your instincts. You know, as you mentioned, I've had the fortune of being at many different companies and many different roles, and it all seems to make sense now in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it didn't at the time. At the time, I was going after a specific challenge, or I was intrigued by a manager that I wanted to work for, or I wanted to be part of a team. And each one of those experiences really built into who I am today to give me the confidence that I have today. And that confidence was not always there. I realized about eight years ago that I had a really tricky roommate and it was a roommate in my head, my own inner voice, I was very hard on myself, right? Mm-hmm. I, would, I would nail something out of the park and then I would think of all the ways I could have done it better. And it was done, I had nailed it. And so I gave that inner voice a name. Um, she's a doubter and I talked to her and I, I put her in her place when I'm feeling insecure. And I, the, if you happen to have an inner voice, if you happen to have a, you know, a bad roommate, I kick her out and bring back, you know, all the affirmations you have about what you are bringing to the challenge and what you are bringing to the table. 
And as for COVID-19, we are very concerned about women. Our, a recent lean-in survey showed that women are leaving the workforce, that the balance of responsibilities, that women are exhausted by the double hatting that they're always doing, but more so now with homeschooling. We're very worried about our Latina and black moms who have burdens that are one to six times more, 1.6 times more than their white counterparts. And we know small businesses led by women are closing at a faster rate than men. So my advice to all women right now is to recognize that you're not alone, is to recognize that you can bet on yourself and that each of these experiences likely are building into the exact door that should be opening. And I would say some of my hardest challenges, the moments that were the toughest for me in my career are ones that I continue to draw from today. Mm -hmm. Lou, do you have any other thoughts for Michelle before we let her go? Michelle, you know, just real quick, you know, you, you said you weren't looking for each of the jobs that you were recruited to. So just what what's some advice to help our listeners get out of their comfort zone? Because you were very comfortable at BBDO and had a great time, great friends. Um, what What's some advice you can give to help people really push out of their comfort zones? I would say that we all have a dream in our heart if we just listen to it. There's a reason I returned the call. I was I was interested in building. I was excited to see what else was out there. And you may not get the call, but the call might be coming to you. So I think the path is likely looking for you. And just be really honest with yourself about what dreams exist in your heart. Those are often guiding the doors that are going to open for you. So that would be my advice. Thank Such you. great advice. Michelle Morris and Lou, now we know why Michelle Morris is one of our 2021 Women Who Lead honorees. Just excellent advice, a wonderful career. It was nice to meet you, nice to see you. And once again, congratulations, Michelle Morris, the Vice President of Global Marketing Solutions for Facebook. Thank you and thank you for all that the two of you do for women and for our community. You set an amazing standard for us. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back right after these messages. You are listening to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald. And Luann, we continue the conversation now with Dr. Ixi Ramirez. She is a faculty member at Michigan Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology. And today we talk about COVID-19 and children, especially the long haulers, children who are suffering the effects of COVID-19 long after they had COVID-19. So Lou, I'm gonna let you take it from there. Start the questioning, Dr. Ramirez, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me both, Luann and Ann, appreciate it. Hi, Dr. Ramirez, nice to see you. Um, we know that a lot of the national attention is um, around kids in COVID-19, whereas last year, um, that really wasn't the focus. It was a different age group. And now we're seeing our younger children being hospitalized. Um, and recently, I know uh, we at CSMAT Children's Hospital and you specifically and your team actually opened up a post-COVID clinic um, to really handle a lot of the things that were, the post, the post-COVID things that we're seeing in kids. So. Can you just in general talk about what we're seeing in kids this year versus last year 
and then um, talk a little bit about the specifics of the clinic and what the clinic will do. Yes, I agree with you. In the past year, there has been a big transition in terms of you know, who we thought were more affected by COVID. And this year, as we're now in 2021, that transition has moved on to children, uh, unfortunately. And so what we know so far, at least in the state of Michigan, is that we have about 115,000 kids um, that have had COVID at some point in time. And the majority of these kids have actually had symptoms that have been fairly mild. There have definitely been some hospitalizations associated uh, with COVID in children. But what we're seeing now is that children are having lingering symptoms um, as we were seeing and have been seeing in adults. Uh, and so that now has pretty much been brought you know, to our attention at Mott. Um, and we've had enough children that have been referred uh, to various specialties at Mott specifically for post-COVID um, symptoms. Commonly it's shortness of breath, chest pain. And so a lot of these children are being referred specifically to pulmonology. So with that in mind, uh, you know, we felt that it was necessary to start to develop a clinic that was multidisciplinary in nature because of the variety of symptoms that come about uh, from COVID um, with the hopes that we can provide efficient care for these children and their families. So I have, uh, I have teenage daughters and some of their friends who have had COVID who um, were very good athletes you know, almost six months later are still having problems running as far as they used to be able to run. Do we know yet um, how, how long the recovery will be or if there will be a recovery in terms yeah. of stamina? Exactly. Yeah. And that's definitely a common uh, concern uh, that comes up when children, teens, are be specifically teens, are being referred to our clinic in particular. It's the athletes who, you know, played soccer very well, basketball very well, these like high endurance um, stamina related sports and now post COVID are having issues. Um, you know, it's really hard to say at this point in time, it's still kind of early in the game, so to speak, um, to know how long the symptoms are lasting. Um, but we, I think each of us probably have seen patients who have either had a you know, range of lingering symptoms being a couple of months to potentially six to eight months or longer. Um, you know, I actually have someone in particular that has had symptoms still ongoing about eight to 10 months or so and still hasn't recovered, um, unfortunately, with shortness of breath and chest pain that just comes and goes. Um, you know, no rhyme or reason to it. Uh, various interventions that we've tried uh, haven't really provided the relief uh, that we're looking for. So we can only hope that maybe it's just a very slow process for some of these um, patients and that they will recover. Um, but then on the flip side, we have some, you know, patients that even though maybe symptoms lasted a month or two, uh, they've been able to resolve and have gone back to their usual state of health. Can you, can you comment just in general as a physician about what, um, you know, what's, what's causing this next wave to really focus on kids? We know there was 
um, a recommendation from the governor last week about um, you know, masking children ages two to four. So that, that sort of took the age group down one notch than what we had been doing. So can you just talk a little bit about what you think is going on? Yeah, um, I guess it's hard to say with certainty. You know, everything is always, uh, we're kind of just learning the ropes as we go, so to speak. Um, you know, it, it's possible that it's because of some of these new variants that are in the community. Is it just that it was a matter of time um, that children were going to get, you know, affected uh, the way the adults have? Um, possibly the difference in vaccination rates right now, just because we don't have the ability to vaccinate the younger, the younger children, or um, you know, haven't been able to vaccinate them as um, uh, as as many of them have been vaccinated, so to speak, you know, 16 and above, uh, compared to adults. Um, it's hard to say, really. Dr. Ramirez, what are some of the treatment protocols that you're using to help these children? Yeah, one of our, you know, our most common interventions uh, in the setting of shortness of breath, um, inability to um, uh, pursue, you know, sports and activities uh, is usually doing a trial of a bronchodilator, which mm -hmm. is um, albuterol uh, is com commonly known as, or a, an emergency inhaler for asthma, um, with the hopes that maybe these inhalers can help to provide some relief by opening and relaxing those airways so that the uh, children can get a better flow of air into their lungs and feel like they have a little bit better relief um, from that shortness of breath. Um, and if it helps, then sometimes we can try some other interventions, such as a daily inhaled steroid to probably address some inflammation that's taking place in these airways. A lot of times, though, um, these, these interventions really have to be a trial. It's, it doesn't work for everybody, um, you know, but then for other children, it works excellent in an excellent way, and they're able to get the relief uh, that they need. Um, so we just have to kind of try it one by one, patient by patient. So for our parents that are out there listening to this show and hearing this interview, it has to be somewhat troubling and concerning. What would you say to them about how to keep their kids safe during COVID right now in this time? I mean, you know, you do not want your child to get this. I don't care what anybody says. I agree with you. Um, you know, definitely our strongest recommendation at this point in time is to continue to wear uh, masks as often as possible. Um, you know, wear them in settings um, where we think we're going to be in either large crowds or in close proximity with other people. I know it's getting difficult. We all know it's getting difficult in terms of being um, uh, persistent, I guess, in our use of these masks. It's taking a toll on on everybody. Um, but we, you know, we can't underestimate the importance and the effects of the use of masks, um, con you know, continuing to use them in public. Um, good old hand washing as well. Can't go wrong with hand washing. You know, I, I continue to say that if we've learned anything over the past year, I hope that we've at least learned as a as a country, as a as you know. Uh, uh, 
Earth, I guess, so to speak, population that we can now wash our hands properly. Twenty seconds, right? right. Well, get every digit, get in between those digits, and if you don't have the time for those twenty seconds, even though we all should, um, sanitizer, right? There's always that sanitizer. Now, where do you stand on vaccines? We know that children sixteen and above can get the vaccine. We are starting to suspect and see that some Michigan residents are reluctant and they don't want to get the vaccine and they probably don't want their children to have the vaccine. So how do you feel about uh, the vaccine for children, Dr. Ramirez? No, I'm definitely all for the vaccine. You know, I'll admit even myself, when we were first introducing the vaccine into the community and knowing very well that as healthcare professionals, we were going to be the first ones to, you know, somewhat be expected to take it. You know, I still I had my, my hesitation, but that soon resolved as soon as I started seeing, you know, co-workers, colleagues, other people at the at the hospital getting the vaccine and, you know, putting their trust into it, um, then I was quickly, I quickly changed uh, my, my mindset about it and was ready to volunteer no problem. You know, so then I'm definitely excited, you know, to see that the vaccine is going to be available as we move down now, obviously 16 and above, with the hopes that even, you know, down to six months of age and above in the long run to really get uh, more people vaccinated in the country. And Lou, is there anything that you would like to add to that before we let Dr. Ramirez go? I would, you know, I would just add that, you know, one more positive um, thing that has come out is we've really seen almost a 98% reduction in the flu for kids. We, we've, we've seen a reduction in our respiratory um, illnesses in kids, which usually our emergency rooms are swamped with those cases from like October to March. Um, we haven't seen them. So we know that social distancing works, masking works, washing your hands work to really combat the flu and, and respiratory. So, you know, probably best practice going forward when we're in those, those types of seasons. Exactly. Our families that have been following precautions, they have definitely been the ones that have actually been the healthiest. And so the ones that we've seen here in clinic, they're the ones that have told me, oh, this is our best winter yet. Yes. haven't been sick or this, but, you know, kids are virtual or we're wearing our masks. We're washing a lot. We're making sure not to leave the house unless we absolutely have to. And so those are the families that are doing well and are, have been very healthy over the last couple of months. And, you know, just before I let you go, there's one other thing I've heard people say lately, and I want you to correct this myth. Some people say, oh, this is nothing more than the common cold. They're mm -hmm. not right about that, are they? No, you know, I would love for this to be just the common cold and that, sure, we all got sick and we're all going to get better, but it's hard to really explain why we're having these post-COVID symptoms, right? We don't get post-cold symptoms in any way. Uh, you know, even with the flu where it can, you know, have a little bit, uh, you know, more of effects on, you know, the elderly and, and our young uh, children, there's still not these post-flu effects or symptoms. So even if you know we were to catch COVID and we maybe get a mild case where it doesn't land us in the emergency department, doesn't land us in the hospital, gosh, I would really hate to have 
post-COVID symptoms of being short of breath, not being able to walk upstairs in my home, not being able to do my daily activities. If I loved a sport, I can't play my sport again. Um, those are really difficult symptoms to really wrap my head around and say, oh, it's just a cold. Those symptoms are just not it. Dr. Ixi Ramirez, faculty member at Michigan Medicine, the Department of Pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology. Thank you so much for your expertise and for your time today. It was great to talk to you. It was great talking to you guys too. Thank you so much. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back after these messages. On this last segment of Women Who Lead, we meet Sarah Prout Rennie. She's the executive director of the Michigan Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Violence. And Sarah, welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to have you on the show, but unfortunately, you come to the show today with some very sobering news, and that is that with the pandemic, you are seeing an increase in domestic violence. First of all, welcome. Lou, I'm going to let you take it from there and we can get to the bottom of what's going on here. Great. Thank you. Welcome, Sarah. Um, Sarah, I'm so uh, happy to be talking to you today because, you know, working in the, in the healthcare system, you know, we are also seeing an increase in domestic violence. And, you know, over the past at least 12 months, we've been calling it the pandemic, a, a pandemic within a pandemic. Mm. And, you know, we have seen a lot of the phone calls um, for help um, reduce. And we know that's because people are socially isolated within their homes and really not providing um you know, the environment for someone to seek help. So can you talk to us a little bit about what what you're seeing um, in the community? Yes, thank you for having me. Can, um, one of the things I wanted to really highlight is that this has been sort of a perfect storm. We really support the importance of social isolation. Unfortunately, what that has done is forced um, victims to stay with their abusers. Um, at the same time, our programs, I represent 73 programs across the state, I have to reduce capacity. There's less donation money, there's less dollars. And um, law enforcement is not arresting on misdemeanors. Some courts haven't had hearings for a year. And so folks aren't being held accountable. So we've seen also, unfortunately, homicide rates uh, spike. Um, this is an unintended consequence of sort of the ways in which the pandemic has affected us socially, but it's time we start dealing with the ways in which this year apart um, has really affected women and children, particularly those in domestic violence situations. And how, how do we how do we even begin to wrap our arms around the social factors you know, that are really, in addition to the pandemic, causing isolation. So we know there's a lack of childcare in the community. So, you know, the child abuse rates are going up because the children are now at home and don't, and are being homeschooled as well. So uh, again, there's no outlet. We know there's unsafe housing, there's unsafe um, neighborhoods. We know there's been job loss, all, you know, contributing to, um, abusive situation. So how can we as a community really help to drive and fix some of these societal issues? Well, it sounds overwhelming if you think of it in the macro, but what 
really matters is any one of these threads can be improved. We can increase um, people's access to child uh, care. We can support and ensure law enforcement and prosecution have the tools they need. We can support our local domestic violence shelters. Any one of those um, pivot points would be really an important place to start. It doesn't matter where we start, we have to start. I can tell you that um, all of last year, we only had 1,200 calls um, for our domestic violence and sexual assault hotline, but in January alone, we had 1,200 calls. So <laughs> it is becoming, um, we know this is a tip of the iceberg. We know that this is a, as you said, a pandemic of the pandemic. And any one of these places, housing, um, childcare, arrest and prosecution are places that we can work to improve um, our response. I would put a um, huge uh, uh, push out there to also donate. Donations are way down to our domestic violence and sexual assault programs. Cut because programs haven't been able to um, do the fundraisers that they're used to doing. So at the very basic, we have to start rebuilding the house against again and putting resources into all of these um, important threads that help us address domestic violence. What what can you know healthcare providers or you know emergency room staff? I mean, unfortunately, that's you know sometimes that's the first um, place you know, where where a person can have a conversation. What what can the medical community do to really try to um, make sure people are safe? So we've worked with medical communities um, throughout the years. And one of the most important things is medical folks need to know who's in their community, need to have resources. Um, if you're in Wayne, Oakland, Macomb, each of you have a shelter. Um, know that we have a 24-7 hotline, which is 1-855-VOICES-4. Um, make sure that you know who to refer people to, but also know that that might be their perpetrator who's bringing them in. And know the signs, don't interview um, a potential victim with the perpetrator there. Um, have little small cards that you can hand them so that they can secrete that and not necessarily um, show their perpetrators. So they're not making it more dangerous. Essentially, uh, medical professionals really need to be educated, um, not only in the community resources, but how to screen appropriately for domestic violence. And you know, Sarah, I know each case is different and each call is different, but is there a common thread in a lot of these calls? Like, What are, what are the women saying is happening here? Well, we know that domestic violence crosses all socioeconomic and um, racial and gender lines, um, although it, perpetrators do tend to be male and victims do tend to be female, according to the national statistics. And the common thread is that the perpetrator is controlling. It's not just physical violence. It's, it's violence around controlling relationships, isolation, for um, controlling finances. It's someone who wants to control the activities completely of another. And during COVID, when there's so many more less resources, and people are truly isolated, it's that much easier for perpetrators who choose to use domestic violence to domestic terrorism to for exert control. So the best counter is to make sure there's less isolation. If you have a friend you're worried about, reach out, Zoom, connect. Um, even if they're tired or, you know, don't necessarily um, say they want to chat, maybe just, you know, have a signal, like, can I check in for a few minutes and see how you are? One of the problems with victims of domestic violence, though, is that they don't want anyone to know, right, that they're suffering like this. 
Well, I think it's often a chicken and the egg. If there's no resources, if you're economically dependent and you have a family that or a community that sees shame in something like divorce and separation, um, it's not so much that they don't want to know, it's that perhaps they are fear our response. Mm. So it's very important that when someone reaches out, it's a, you respond in a very non-judgmental way, judgmental way. And some victims aren't ready to move on or don't choose to leave their perpetrators. And it's important that you're active listening and hearing what they need. And there may be really good reasons. They might be afraid for their children. They may not have economics to do that. There might not be tools. Our job is to offer the tools and open the door and when folks are ready to walk through then the door is always open now you talk about donating where would our listeners go to donate how could we get involved so we have a list at www.mcdsv.org of shelters in our um in your area and if you go to that list, most folks really need cash. Um, right now, uh, we don't have the ability to store a lot of like physical goods, um, cash, hygiene products, things like that that are transient that you can use um, and that turn over. Um, and you would go and just go to your local community shelter, they're on that list and say, what do you need? Um, in Oakland County, it's Haven, in Macomb, it's Turning Point, and Wayne, it's First Step. All three of those shelters are um, overtaxed and overwhelmed mm -hmm. um, and could use any, any generosity the community could give. Sarah Prout-Rennie, Executive Director of the Michigan Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Violence, thank you for joining us today to shed some light on the situation. Thank you so much for having me. We really appreciate it. And uh, you have been listening to Women Who Lead. On behalf of my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend.